I just can't say enough for these folks, and, and especially the Lawrence Baptist Association, uh, for what they have done. I, my heart's desire is I wish I could take all of you down there and, and let you see the work that these folks are doing there. And then they go on mission trips all over the place. They don't just come here to Clintwood. Um, I'd be okay with it if it's all they did, but they they don't. They go all kinds of places. And um, and so just in the way God uh, put us together, it was just God's handiwork, God's plan. And I've told you all the story before. Jenny and I was going up on on the mountain to see the overlook. Uh, we didn't climb the stairs, but we just drove up to see it. And and I had asked about some backpacks, and uh, Bill Barker said he didn't have any, and he would do some checking, and just so happened that their association was going somewhere else over in Virginia, and it was canceled, and Bill told Bobby to get... Uh, for me to get a hold of Bobby Jones ASAP. So Jenny and I pulled off wherever we're at, up about where the airplane hit that rock up there years ago. And we pulled off there and had phone service, and I called Bobby Jones, and uh, the rest is history. And then this pastor has came up about every year, haven't you? You've come up. I think you missed one time, didn't you? I think you, I think you've been here about every time, but um, and he's just been a blessing. And so all of you uh, that have heard him before, if you've never heard Bobby preach, you're in for a treat because it's not so that that he's so special. It's just the God he serves is so special. And years ago, I loved Robbie Zachariah. I loved to hear him. I loved to read his books. Uh, just he's, I love his work. And um, he spoke somewhere. And, um, and in, the man giving him an introduction spoke about his dad told all about his dad's accomplishments. And then when he got to Robbie, he said, and this is his son, Robbie Zachariah, and he walked off. He didn't say a word about Robbie. And so we could tell you a lot about his heavenly father and what his heavenly father has accomplished and accomplished in his life. And I have no doubt he's going to speak to us tonight through Bobby. So, Bobby, you come. I do want to add something about our association. Um, <clears throat> Brother Bobby Jones has been a tremendous blessing to our association. We did not do all the things that we do now prior to his coming. And uh, I want to just, one person can make a difference. And you need to know that. One person can absolutely make a difference. And uh, we literally go all over the world. We have a, uh, a work that is done there in the Philippines that people go to constantly. We have a work uh, 
on the Navajo Reservation that we've been going there for maybe the last 11 to 12 years. And um, we've been to Russia. We have, uh, and this was a neat thing. Uh, in Mexico, we had a group. I was not a part of it. Um, I have, we've, I've been down to Mexico with some of our group, but we had a group that went to a tribe of people, and our people were able to take them the Bible, their very first Bible in their language. And the Lawrence Baptist Association uh, was the group that took that Bible to them. And about a hundred years ago, these people were making human sacrifices. And it was just a phenomenal thing. I mean, that was one of the things that just really was so great. And um, God's doing a great work through our association. And, and we are. We're, I, I can speak on behalf of our association that we are so pleased to be able to be in partnership with y'all. And, um, and I want y'all to know something. We do come here to minister to y'all, but I want you to know we get ministered to when we come. We love the fellowship with y'all. We love the relationship that we have. And um, it's not a perfect association, and I don't want you to dare get the idea that, um, that somehow every church in the Lawrence Baptist Association is a, is a church full of perfect churches. There's not one perfect church in the Lawrence Baptist Association. And uh, every church has struggles. You need to know that. Because if you get this mindset um, that, well, wow, that just sounds like such a great association and, and all the churches are thriving, that's not the case. We, everybody goes through struggles, and your life is a life of struggle. I may preach on that this week. I, I'm, I'm still trying to decide that. Your life is going to be a life of struggles, but that doesn't mean you give up. You just accept the fact life is a life of struggles, and you just keep plugging away and keep plugging away. God is faithful. Um, I, I wanted to say something last night. Can y'all hear me okay? Do I have this lapel mic where it needs to be? Okay. Um, my message last night, this morning I was reading, I'm reading in the book of Acts, and I was reading in Acts chapter 5, and y'all know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Last night when I was preaching on sin, and this morning I was reading about Ananias and Sapphira, and of course the story there is that um, they had a piece of property that they went and sold, and everybody was kind of selling their stuff and giving to the church, and, and so that everybody's needs were met. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And uh, apparently what they had done was said, well, you know, we sold it for X number of dollars. But what they did was they, hit, they, they kept some back and they lied about it. And Ananias and Sapphira were both struck dead because of what they had done. And it's interesting, when you, I think it's about in verse 13, when what was happening in the early church was so phenomenal, and people saw that, people inside the church saw it, and people outside the church saw it. And here's what verse 13, I believe it's verse 13 of chapter 5, tells us in the book of Acts. It came to a point where there were people who were fearful to join the church. They had tremendous respect, highly esteemed the church, but they were fearful because they recognized God will deal with sin. And I thought about the message that I preached last night, Brother Joe, and how the statement that I made, if, if, you're, if you're not going to turn away from your sins, at least resign your position in the church, your membership. There was a time when God would resign your membership for you. And I've asked myself the question, because I've read that passage before, man, what if God did that today for everybody who has that kind of sin? Would we have anybody in the church? 
would have a pastor. <laughs> God's a good God, but God's a holy God. And we need to remember that. And as I spoke primarily last night about what it takes for revival, um, and, and this would be a question I would ask you, how, how, many, how many messages on sin does the preacher need to preach on before we deal with our sin? I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I ought not to have to come up here and preach all five messages on sin. I, I pray that last night's message on that was sufficient. Let's deal with our sin and we'll get to see revival. Now, here's, here's what I want to preach on tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And let me ask you this question as you're finding your way there. How many of you have ever heard of something called a doomsday clock or the doomsday clock? You ever heard of it? Let me tell you what the doomsday clock is. The doomsday clock was something that was developed by scientists. And, um, and, and here's, here's what it is. It's a symbolic clock that represents the countdown to a possible global catastrophe. Basically, when the world is going to end. And the people who maintain it consider the threat of nuclear war and now climate change. They, they're, you know, we've got one politician that says in, what, in 10 years, everything's going to end. Um, they maintain this doomsday clock, and the closer it gets to midnight, midnight is when they say that everything is going to end. The closest that it's ever been... It was one minute to midnight. They had said one minute. It was 1953. And, and what happened in 1953 is that both the United States and the Soviet Union tested thermonuclear devices within nine months of each other. And so from the standpoint of these scientists and these, these people who maintain this doomsday clock, what they felt was this. We're not far from the United States and the Soviet Union having an all-out nuclear war. And that was, that was a great fear. I grew up during the time of the Cold War. And so I remember uh, wondering, every time I would see a, a news break as a young child, it always made me think, okay, did they just fire a nuclear weapon on us? And so obviously there was the real threat of that. And it got, it got so, in 1953, it was one minute till midnight. The furthest it has ever been from midnight was in 1991. Anybody remember what happened in 1991? It was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it went back to 17 till midnight. And so what the mindset was is, hey, everything, we don't really think everything is about to end. And so there's a mindset that that the secular world believes that because of whether it's going to be a war, nuclear war, or again now with global warming and all the catastrophes and everything, that they really, they really follow this and they're asking themselves the questions, when's the world going then? Does anybody have a clue right now where the, um, how close they believe it is to midnight now? Two minutes. Right now they believe it's two minutes to midnight. The reality is this, they don't know. But one thing I do know is this, there's a lot of Christians believe that it's not long before the Lord comes. When you start listening to believers and everything that we start, that we see going around, there will be people who will say, you know, I just don't believe it's that far off. 
And so you've got the secular world believing that it's not long before the world ends. You've got Christians who believe that it's not long before the Lord comes back. And so we're, we're both really, the secular world and the Christians really have this mentality that, hey, it's not long before things come to an end. And I, I personally believe it's not long. But here's the reality. I don't know. And you don't know. And what can happen is this. We can get a mindset that says, well, it's not going to be long anyway. And you know what we can do as the church? We can say, well, it's not going to be long. We're just going to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. And I don't know if that's what the church really believes, but that's the way we're living. Because we've become very, very complacent. And here's a question that a lot of Christians will ask themselves. Will God ever, are we done as a nation Will God ever send a revival to America? And that's a question that a lot, of, a lot of Christians are asking. Are we so far away from God? Is God ever going to send a revival? And the mindset could be with that, that well, if God's not going to send a revival, then what's the use in us trying so hard? I want to preach to you tonight a message that I've entitled last-minute revival. How many of you have ever seen what you would call a revival in a church where you saw a real move of God where there is no way to explain what happened other than the fact that God just showed up? Anybody ever experienced that? Okay. Fewer people are raising their hands than are not raising their hands. I remember whenever I was young growing up, we had a pastor by the name of Ben Glosson who came and preached, and we had probably 30-something people in our little small church that got saved. And it was great. But I'll tell you what I want. Whether God sends a revival or not, I'm going to be okay. I, I'm, I'm going to heaven, I know that. I want my kids to see it. I feel like we've got a generation that really needs to see a move of God. What have they seen? What have they seen in our churches? I can tell you what they've seen. They've seen a lot of fighting. They've seen a lot of bickering in our churches. They've seen church splits. They see where people get mad, take their ball and go home. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. And all... All most of our, our young people have ever seen in the church is the church fighting and bickering and splitting. No wonder, once they graduate from high school, many will leave the church and never return. I don't want you to give up on a revival whether it's something that happens this week or something next week or next year, we as the church always need to be waiting for that next move of God. And I want to show you a passage of Scripture here that I think is really, really neat. And it has to do with a king by the name of Josiah. And I want to show you the revival that God brought during the time of Josiah. And God did a phenomenal work. And here's the interesting thing about it. It wasn't long before Judah was about to fall. 
Everything was about to come to an end. And at the last minute, God sends a revival just before He brings destruction. I can't help but believe that we don't have a whole lot of time. But I would pray that before that time comes, that our nation would experience one more move of God. One more move that would usher tens of thousands, if not millions, into His kingdom. We need to desire that. Last minute revival, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word and listen to what happens here in this young king, Josiah, who took the throne at the age of eight. And listen to what God's Word says. We're going to read through verse 7, but we're going to, to look at many more verses after that. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them. He cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He break in pieces and made dust of them and strode upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priest upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali, with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, and had beaten the graven images into powder, and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. May God add his blessing to the reading of his words. You may be seated. I want us to look at a few things here tonight. And I just want you to get a picture of a godly young man and what God did just prior to the falling of the nation of Judah. Now, I want you to keep this in mind just to give you a little bit of history here. Y'all know that after Solomon, you had the first king of Israel was a man by the name of Saul. After Saul, you had David who ascended the throne. God took the kingdom from Saul, gave it to David. After David, there was Solomon. And remember what happened after Solomon... After him, the kingdom split in two. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, they never had one good king. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell. And with the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, they fell and what was left was the southern kingdom of Judah. And they had some good kings. Uh, they had some bad kings. They had more bad kings than they did good kings, but nevertheless, they did have some good kings. And so what's happening here is the time of Judah's falling is about to take place. They have sinned so much, and God is ready. The works are already in the process, and Judah's time is about to be done with. And they're going to fall, and they're going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years because of all their idolatry. 
And yet just prior to their falling, Josiah, at the age of eight years old, he ascends the throne. Now let me just show you some things here and point out to you. And I want you to get this, get, get this picture in your mind. And look at this young man. And what I want to do tonight is, again, I want everyone to just get the picture that it's never too late. It's never too late. And see what happens here. Here's the first thing that I want you to note about Josiah. It's this. Number one, Josiah sought the Lord. Look what the Bible tells us in verse 3. It says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. Now, in the history of Judah, there were five what we call revival kings. And those revival kings were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Josiah is the last of the revival kings. The last king that we see where God does a tremendous work and it purges the nation and they experience a move of God. After him, the nation is going to plunge rapidly until Jerusalem falls and the people are going to be sent into captivity. Now let me note some things here about Josiah as he sought the Lord. I want you to notice his influence in what happened to him. His great-grandfather was a, was a king by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh reigned 55 years. And the Bible says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He sacrificed his own children in the fire. This is how bad Manasseh was. Can you imagine having a king that bad that for 55 years this evil king, he reigned over the nation. 55 years of wickedness reigning. And the influence that he would have had. He put a carved image in the temple. His father was a man by the name of Amon. Amon was just as wicked as his father. He was so bad, his servants assassinated him after only two years on the throne. And so Josiah, his grandfather was Manasseh, his father was, was Amon, and so bad, two years, and they assassinated him. And that is why Josiah ascends the throne, what the Bible says, at the age of eight, because his father was killed. So this young boy becomes the king at the age of eight. His father and grandfather were wicked men. And I want you to think about this. Had his father lived, and had he been able to influence his son, it could have well been that Josiah would have been just as wicked. And I thought about this. It may have been a blessing that his father died when he was eight because apparently what happens is that someone came in who obviously had a very godly influence in his life. And we actually think it was Hilkiah the priest, the high priest. We're not sure of it. But it could very well be that the high priest Hilkiah comes in and really begins to mentor him. I think it is safe to assume that someone influenced him in the right way. And here's what I want you to think of. When you begin to think of revival, now he takes, he takes this, the reign at the age of eight, and at the age of 16, eight years later, the Bible says he began to seek the Lord. And I want you to think about this. Oftentimes when we think of revival, when we start planning for revival, you know what the way it, in terms that we think about it? We think about it in these terms. The preacher plans for a time when the revival preacher is going to come in. How many ever uh, months it might be, two months out, a month out, three months out. 
and we start planning for the revival. When I thought about this, it made me think about this. Don't think in terms of revival for what God is going to do in the next month or the next two months, six months. I want you to think right now about our children. Think about the seeds that you're planting today that could lead to a revival 10 years, 20 years from now. See, that's what happened with Josiah. At the age of eight, someone was planting seeds in his life. And when the time came where he became a man, God did a great work in his life. So think way beyond. You need to be thinking about your children and your grandchildren right now. And the question that you need to ask yourself is this. What kind of influence am I having in their life right now that one day God may use them to do a great work? You need to think about all these kids who come to your church. They're not just kids running around getting fingerprints on the walls. We need to invest in this, this generation of children. Sometimes churches just kind of write them off and say, well, they're just children. They don't really, they don't get, they don't give anything to the offering plate. They're takers. They're always taking, taking. We have to put money in, money in, and money in. Let me tell you what, you're going to, You'll be glad the day when you invested in your children and your youth. So here's Josiah, and at the age of eight, his father dies and he takes the throne. We really need to be trying to do everything that we can to influence our children. Someone influenced Josiah. Eight years when he comes to the throne, probably had a, a regent or an advisor, someone who came alongside him. He obviously was not given the reign of the kingdom at the age of eight, but someone came alongside him. And the Bible says in verse 3 that he began to seek the Lord at the age of 16. To say that he sought the Lord, I want you to understand something. When we talk about someone seeking the Lord, and I mean they do their, they wear their WWJD bracelets and all this stuff. When the Bible says he sought the Lord, this was serious. This was a matter of him wanting to know who the God... And notice who it said goes back to. It goes back to what it says his father David. I didn't know this, but I read that in the Hebrew language, when you hear it says something about their father, like his father David, obviously David was not his father, but there is no word for grandfather in the Hebrew. You have to say something like his father's father. And so this was a father, grandfather, grandfather removed... And so he sought the God of his father, David, who was a man after God's own heart, and he began to seek back the, the, the king that loved God more than any other king in the nation of Israel, David, a man after God's own heart, and he began to seek the God of his father, David. Jehovah God. And so this would have been a pursuit that absolutely changed the course of the nation. And we began to look at Josiah's life, and we see his age and what God began to do. I promise you that your pursuit of God will impact you more than anything else that you seek after in this life. And you ask yourself the question, what are the things now that are really, really important to me? Josiah began to seek the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12.1, Solomon said this, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. How many of you wish you could go back now and do some things differently? You can't. But what you can do is to help raise a generation to serve the Lord now, to seek the Lord now. Josiah sought the Lord. And that's really important to understand that as he comes along at the age of 16, he is seeking the God of his father. 
And now here's the next thing that I want you to see here. It's really important. Josiah purged the nation. Look what the Bible tells us. So at the age of 16, the Bible says, uh, in the eighth year of his reign, he came to the throne, how old? He was eight. In the eighth year of his reign, which he would have been 16, he began to seek the Lord. And then the Bible says, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. In the twelfth year, he'd have been the age of 20. And so apparently in these four years as he began to seek God, the best that he could to know God, to understand what God desired in his life. At the age of 20, Josiah the king, as a man now, is beginning to look around and he's realizing something. We're in a mess. Look how far away we have gotten. The wickedness of the culture infected both his father and grandfather, but Josiah chose not to be influenced by the culture, but to influence the culture himself. Church, we are being so influenced by the culture. We're letting the culture tell us how we need to be as the church. Do you know that we've got secular people telling the church now about what our values need to be? We've got the secular world telling the church how we need to view marriage. We've got the secular world telling us how we need to do worship. And here's the bad thing, we're listening. Why in the world would the church listen to the secular world about how we need to do church? And so what's happened is, instead of the church influencing the culture, the culture is now influencing the church. And here is Josiah, in his lifetime, the culture was absolutely depraved. And Josiah would not be influenced by the culture. He stands up and he does something about it. What did he do? He destroyed the idols. He goes through, the Bible says he purges. When 20 years old, he started the reforms. While many of our 20-year-olds are out partying, Josiah was purging the land of wickedness. The kings before him erected the idols. Josiah comes along and tears down the idols. And I want you to get this here. Look at verse 4 and look at verse 7 and note how thoroughly he did this. What does the Bible tell us? In verse 4, And he broke down the altars of Balaam in the presence and the images that were on the high... Uh, that were on high above them, he cut down and the groves and carved images and the molten images and break in pieces and made dust of them. Look in verse 7. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Do you notice what he did to the idols? He ground those things down to powder. Absolutely destroyed them. There's going to be no way you're going to be able to take this idol and do anything with it. Let me tell you, we have a tendency to deal with sin a little bit at the time. Have you ever noticed that? When he goes and he purges, he does it thoroughly. Grinds it down to powder. Here's what we do with sin. As God convicts us of sin, when God convicts you of sin, how should you deal with it? Thoroughly. If you don't deal with it thoroughly, it will always come back to get you. I heard Agent Rogers use this illustration one time and I thought it was really good. He said, here's the way we kind of like to deal with sin. It's like the little boy who was going to cut off his dog's tail. And he didn't want to shock the dog, so he just cut it off one inch at a time. So he wouldn't lose it all at one time. You know how we try to deal with sin? I'll cut back. I'm telling you, when God looks at the church today, God's not asking us to cut back on sin. God is calling us to purge our sins. And here's Josiah, the young king, 20 years of age. He absolutely purges the land. 
If we are going to experience revival, we cannot hang on to any idols. Josiah, I believe, was looking for God to do something. And he knew that if something was going to happen, everything had to go. Let me ask you a question tonight. What is it that you hold on to so tightly that God would just about have to rip your arms off to get you away from it? What are you hanging on to? What is the idol in your life that you hold closer to than you hold to God? Let it go, grind it to dust and powder, and let it be scattered by the wind. Let it go. So we see Josiah here as he comes. He destroyed the idols and then note what he did. He restored the temple. Look what the Bible says in verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan and the son of Isaiah and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. All right, so it appears that it took about six years to purge the land of all the idols and images. It's a big deal because there is so much that is going on. It takes six years to do this. And at the age of 26, he restores the temple. Once he got rid of all the false worship, he restored the Lord's house so they could have real worship. Real worship could not exist in the land where idols remained. He removed the idols and listen. Then he restored the temple. Your body is a temple. And here's what you've got to understand. We cannot have real worship until we first remove the idols. When we live our lives far away from God, here's what we want to do. And I've seen it so many times that people say, man, I want to get close back to God. And what they want to do is they want to restore the worship before they ever get rid of the idols. When you look at Josiah here, what happened first? Before the temple was ever restored, before worship could ever be restored, you've got to get rid of the idols. And so if any church is ever going to have genuine worship, you've got to get rid of the idols, you've got to get rid of the sin. And in your own personal life, you might be thinking, well, man, I'm going to get back in church and people do it all the time. I have visual people. Yeah, preacher, we're going to get back in church. We know that we need to be in church. It's not going to do you any good until you get rid of the sin in your life. And so Josiah recognized this. First of all, you purged the land. And once the land was purged, took six years to do it, now we can restore the temple. Now we can come back to what genuine worship is supposed to be. And so here's what happens. They go to restore the temple. And then Josiah listened to the book. Look what the Bible tells us here in verse 14. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. All right, so here's what happens. They're restoring the temple. And a book is found. It was the law of Moses. And what was amazing about it is this. Where the book was found. Now here's the thing, if it was found in the temple, guess where it was lost? In the temple. They lost the word of God in the temple. The place where it was supposed to be read, and there they read it. Let me ask you a question, could it be that many of our churches, that we've lost the book? We're not in danger of losing the book physically, we've got plenty of Bibles. But we are in danger of losing the book spiritually. 
I tell our people this. I've said to them, whether I'm your pastor or somebody else is your pastor, don't let anybody stand in that pulpit who doesn't believe this book. We have churches that over time they have thought less and less of God's Word. And I want you to hear me in this. The less you begin to think of God's Word, the less you will ultimately begin to think about God. And I can imagine as the, as the Word of God got away from them, they got further and further away from God, and now they find the book there in the temple. How do we lose the book? Number one, by not reading it. You can have 20 Bibles. What good do 20 Bibles do in your home if you never read it? So we lose the book by not reading it. Here's another we do. What happens is by reading it but not believing it. And there's plenty of pastors out there who will literally preach on a Sunday morning and they don't really believe this book. And here's another one. You can read it and say you believe it but not obey it. And you can lose the book. What good does it do you to read it, believe it, and not obey it? Many ways that you can lose the book. Have you lost your book? I pray that you'll find it. Here we see that Josiah, they found the book. And the book was read. Listen to what the Bible tells us in verse 18. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Achim and the son of Shaphan and Abdon and the son of Milcah and Shaphan and the scribe and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. When the law of Moses was read, it cut him to his heart. It penetrated him. Now keep this in mind. How old was Josiah when he began to seek the Lord? He was 16. And he genuinely began to seek the Lord. But now the law is found. He's 26 now. And it's amazing. What begins to happen is this is when the revival begins in his own personal life. He begins to read, and it absolutely cuts him to the heart. The Bible says it penetrates him. The Word of God is tremendously power. This was a man who was already walking with God the best that he knew how. But here's the difference. He began to read, and here's what he read. He read about the wrath of God. You know something that we don't like to talk about in the church? The wrath of God. I heard someone say this. You don't really know how good the good news is until you first of all know how bad the bad news is. And when you begin to hear how bad the bad news is, the good news is not good news, it becomes great news. And I think what happens here, and the Bible specifically says this, that as he began to read, he read about the wrath of God that was coming. And it penetrated, it cut his heart. I think one of the problems that we have in our society today is we're afraid to preach about the wrath of God. Have you ever noticed how offended people are in our society? It's amazing. <laughs> I, I don't do social media. I couldn't. I read so much, though, that somebody will say one thing and everybody gets mad because they get their feelings hurt. 
the United States of the offended. And what's happening in the churches today is that we are doing our dead best not to offend people. My Bible tells me that God's Word is offensive. And when you tell a people who are in sin that the wrath of God is upon them, nothing offends them more. What kind of people are we, though, if we genuinely believe that God's wrath is real? What favor are we doing people to tell them that they're okay when we know they're not? And so what you have here is that what really sticks in Josiah's mind is that his... His heart is open. He begins to understand that the wrath of God is coming. Does it bother us that the wrath of God is coming? Here's Let me tell you what I believe as a, as a Christian. As a believer, preacher, do you think you'll ever experience the wrath of God? Absolutely not. And the reason is because I am in Christ. And what happened 2,000 years ago is that my Savior died on the cross for me. He took the wrath of God upon Himself... He appeased the anger of God and I am in Christ and the wrath of God is never going that way again. I'm not going to experience the wrath of God. I might experience His chastening hand. Those whom He loves, He chastens. But Jesus Christ bore in Himself my sins. He took the penalty of my sin upon Himself. But how callous can we be as the people to know that even though we're not going to experience the wrath of God, that we don't care that our neighbor is? And Josiah begins to read this, and it bothers him tremendously as he reads the Word of God. And so he opens up his heart before the Lord, and he sought God and obeyed Him. And I want you to notice what happens next. As his heart is penetrated... Listen to what the Bible tells us. You'll see that Josiah received this blessing. Look what the Bible tells us in verse 22. And Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they spake to her to that effect. And she answered them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon the place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard, Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humbledest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee, says the Lord." Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the king word again. What's happening here? It was a blessing of peace in Josiah's life. See, it's close to midnight for Judah. The wrath of God is about to be poured out. 
And what happens is because here is Josiah, he genuinely sought the Lord, his heart was broken over the sin of Israel, he did what he could to purge the the land of its sin, and God says this, my wrath is still coming, but you're not going to see it. You had a tender heart. You humbled yourself. And this is why we call this the last minute revival for the nation of Judah. Was it set? Was God going to destroy them? Yes, it was going to happen. Seventy years of captivity. But God said, because you were willing, because you had a tender heart, you are going to live in peace. But it was absolutely conditional. There was humility, there was tenderness, and there was brokenness. And here's what we need to look at. The revival postponed the destruction, but I want you to think about this. Think about the lives that were impacted for eternity during the revival. And that's what I think about. Do I believe that God's wrath is coming on this world? Absolutely it is. But church, if we could get one more revival before God's wrath comes, how many people would it impact? Tonight, I really, really want you... I dealt with sin last night... This is a message that that deals with sin. But I want to give you that encouragement. Do not give up. Don't become complacent. Most of our churches, when you look in America, so many of our churches are declining in attendance. Don't give up. Don't think, well, God's done. You don't know what God's going to do. And here's what I know, but until God comes, you and I need to be faithful as the watchman on the wall doing what God has called us to do, telling a perverse nation, turn to the Lord. So what you're going to do? Let God speak to your heart. Satan's going to try to convince you, because let me tell you, he doesn't want to see a revival. Satan's going to try to convince you, give up, quit, don't worry. Satan wants to pull as many people into hell as he can. And we're here to win as many people to Jesus as we can. And if God brings a revival, many people can be ushered into God's kingdom. It'd be great to see a nationwide revival. You can't determine what's going to happen in Los Angeles. You can't determine what's going to happen in New York. But you can make an impact here in Clintwood. And it's got to start right here. I'll close with this. I heard a preacher say one time that he was praying for revival, and here's what he did. He drew a big circle, and he stood in the circle, and he said, God send revival and let it begin in this circle. Only you can determine what you're going to do. You can't determine what somebody else does. Josiah sought the Lord, and it brought revival to a nation that desperately needed it. God's wrath is against our nation, folks. I want my kids to see a revival. I want my kids to know that the God of the Bible is real. I want them to see a service where God shows up.
and there's no other way to explain it, then it's the hand of God. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm not just desiring a one-week revival, Brother Joe. I want to see God do something that moves a city, a state, a nation. He's done it before. And I'm believing that He'll do it again. And if He chooses not to, I want to at least live my life as though He is going to. Let's pray. Lord, I know that it gets tiring. I know that people, we grow weary in well-doing. And we want to give up. I pray, Lord, that tonight, that you'll speak to our hearts. Lord, I want my kids to see a revival. Most of my children have already professed faith in you. We tried to teach them. I want them to see you move, though, Lord. A revival that shakes a land, and there's no other way to explain it other than the fact that you've moved. Lord, for the ones that are here tonight, I pray, Lord, for every heart that you would absolutely bring the hope and the conviction that, Lord, it can happen again. We pray for revival. But we pray that we'll have hearts that are ready to receive it. To you be the glory. May you bring it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.